Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Thursday afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. And we'll have more time for your calls coming up later in this hour. Got a few other things to get to as well. But I want to begin in this hour with... Well, kind of a disturbing question. Could Alberta find itself as a have-not province? Right? It, it, it almost seems preposterous on the surface. How could that even possibly be? How bad would things have to get in Alberta for that to be the case? And what would the implications be for the rest of the country? Obviously, for the, the country as a whole to, to be functioning, you need strong economic engines. And if Alberta wasn't that anymore... That would have implications, uh, I think, right across the country. The Fraser Institute's out with a new report today called The Great Convergence, Measuring the Fiscal Capacity Gap Between Have and Have-Not Provinces. Now, the idea of a fiscal capacity, it's very relevant to the uh, equalization formula. And I suppose it would be ironic at some level if Alberta were to be successful in bringing about major changes to equalization at a time where we would qualify for it. Now, again, maybe that's still far off, but it's a lot closer now than, than it's been literally in, in decades. So you can read this for yourself at uh, FraserInstitute.org. But uh, joining us uh, to talk more about the uh, the study, its findings, its implications, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Ben Eisen, who is a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute and author of this report, which has mentioned up at FraserInstitute.org. Ben, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. There we go. Are you there, Ben? Yes, I'm, I'm here. Oh, perfect. There we go. Okay. Uh, thanks for joining us here. Appreciate this. So uh, before we get into all the details on this, you know, equalization can be complex and, and hard to, to explain to people. And mm-hmm. fiscal capacity, even in and of itself, can be a difficult concept. But why don't we start there? What, what do we mean when we talk about fiscal capacity? Okay. Uh, fiscal capacity, to boil it down, uh, it's a measure of each government in Canada's, each provincial government's ability to raise their own revenue through taxes and through natural resources. So the idea, to go a little bit more specific, is that if all the provinces set all their tax rates uh, at exactly the same level, some provinces would generate more than others, because more, more money, because they're higher, in, in, higher income, so they get more in income tax. More successful corporations, they get more corporation income tax. Uh, so, of course, all the provinces don't actually have all their taxes at the same level. So this is something we have to construct. We say, if the provinces all had their same uh, tax rates, how much would they generate? If you would generate a lot, you're a richer province, and uh, you, you don't get equalization. If you only generate a little, that means you're a lower-income province, and you're likely to receive equalization. So fiscal capacity, uh, is it's a very closely linked to just a measure of overall fiscal strength, plus natural resource revenues, and it's at the core of how equalization payments are determined, and it's just a useful uh, metric for assessing the overall strength of a government and its ability to raise money. 
Yeah, so wages are, are a big factor in determining fiscal capacity, but as you say, they're, they're not the only factor. No, not the only factor at all. Uh, they are very important because things like personal income taxes are a major source of revenue. People, higher income people spend more, so uh, if consumption rate tax rates were across the country um, even, then obviously a more, more well-off country would get more consumption revenue, consumption tax revenue, but also, uh, as in the particular case of Alberta, very importantly, so much natural resource revenues has, have historically come into government coffers uh, that other provinces don't have that same luxury. So that has further boosted uh, the fiscal capacity of Alberta, which is to say their ability to generate resource revenue and tax revenue on their own, uh, which is the key to understanding what fiscal capacity is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly we, we recognize, and I think people are probably attuned to the realities of, of what's going on with natural resource revenues and the royalties and, and corporate taxes that Alberta receives, and, and those have taken a big nosedive. Are we also seeing in Alberta um, a stagnation or even a drop-off in, in average wages or the median wage? Yeah, well, it's been, it's been a terrible uh, last it, – it's been a terrible – past 15 years, quite frankly. Uh, 2009, there was a recession. 2014-15, there was a steep recession. We're in the midst of another recession now. Uh, all those things take a toll on just about every economic metric uh, you can imagine. And they're the reason that the gap between Alberta and other provinces of the country have shrank so dramatically. And that's the key finding of our study. Uh, we go back to 2007, and we find, just for the sake of illustration, uh, that Alberta uh, was the highest income province of the country. It had a fiscal capacity gap per person, advantage of about $11,000 over the poorest province in the country. This year, we estimate that will have fallen to $4,000 per person. So from 11 being the gap between the richest and the poorest, down to about 4 being the gap between the richest and the poorest. And actually, Alberta is not even likely to be the richest anymore. It's probably going to be British Columbia. So we're talking about a very rapid change uh, Alberta losing its top spot in terms of ability to raise revenue for the first time since anyone started measuring these things. Uh, it's genuinely a historic time with respect to the changes in Alberta's uh, capacity to re- raise revenue and the overall strength of its economy. Right, which has all kinds of implications, not not just for Alberta and uh, you know government mm-hmm. uh, decisions and the economy, but th- this would have repercussions right across the country potentially. Oh, absolutely. So first, there's the implications for policymakers in Alberta. Uh, Travis Tays, the finance minister, put it very well when he said, uh, we can't spend like the, we're the rich kids on the block anymore because we're not. He had it hit it dead on, uh, hit it right on the nail that that is the case. Uh, so there's important implications in Alberta itself, but there's implications for the entire rest of the country. Alberta's contributions to federal tax revenue uh, have really helped keep federal finances afloat over the past decade, saved the federal government a ton of additional debt which benefits people all across the country. So if that uh, strength in Alberta disappears, uh, that's bad news for everyone because it hurts federal finances. There's a second very obvious factor that people don't always stop to think about is that Albertans buy things from people all over the country. So if the province is suffering, that's a huge market that has less money to buy stuff uh, from people all over the country. A weak Alberta is terrible news uh, for the overall health of the uh, Canadian economy, particularly because of how large Alberta's contributions to the well-being of the country has been over the past 15 years plus, and in fact, throughout uh, recent history. So there are implications uh, for the economic well-being of provinces, all the cro- people all across the country, and for policymakers, too, who have to adjust to these realities. The biggest adjustments are likely in Alberta, but there's policy adjustments that need to be made all over the place, including with the federal equalization program. I mean, how, how far off or how real are the prospects of, of Alberta falling into have-not status? 
Yeah, if you'd asked me that question uh, 10 years ago and said, what are the chances that in the next 15 years, I would have said there's no chance. It's, it's, yeah. it's, ne- next, to impo- it's next to impossible. Uh, and I would have been proven wrong by events. We are now very close to that. Uh, Alberta now has uh, an advantage in terms of fiscal capacity relative to the national average of about 4%. It's barely existent. Whereas in 2007, fiscal capacity of Alberta was nearly twice as high. So from about 100% advantage, to about a 4% advantage against the rest of Canada. And it's once you drop below that rest of Canada number that it be- and stay there for a couple of years, that it becomes likely that you receive equalization payments. Whether that'll happen in Alberta or not, it's, I-, I can't assign a percentage. It's a real plausible thing that could happen. Right. Um, but the facts that were there, the fact that it is a plausible thing, I'm not saying it will happen, but the fact that we're even talking about it as a realistic uh, thing that might happen in the province and with fiscal federalism in Canada... If you told me 10 or 15 years ago, I, I simply wouldn't have believed it was possible. Yeah, which which is saying a lot. And, you know, you think about the pressures then on, on the federal government because mm-hmm. there, there's a lot less coming in in terms of tax revenues from Alberta. And then having to, to include Alberta a, as a recipient of equalization, what kind of pressures would that on, on both sides put on, on the federal government? Well, the first point you raise is of crucial importance to federal finances. Alberta's net contribution to federal finances in recent years, even though it's been weakened economically, has been about $20 billion per year. Uh, more $20 billion more in federal, federal tax money has poured into Ottawa from Alberta than have come back in transfers and services. Uh, so that's kept the deficit $20 billion smaller than it, it would have been every year. It's prevented a lot of debt accumulation. You take that advantage away... You strip that down to, let's say, zero in net contribution services and uh, become equal to tax revenue, then there you've got a $20 billion additional hole right there that the federal government has to deal with. So the implications for federal finances and the ability to balance the budget are, are stark. As for other provinces in the equalization program, this convergence process that we're talking about, with not just Alberta coming closer to the national average, but Newfoundland and Labrador plunging below, Saskatchewan having a difficult time, convergence all around, if these provinces become equalization eligible, there's only a fixed number of equalization dollars available that are split up by whoever's eligible. So whenever a new province gets an entitlement, the existing provinces that receive equalization get less. We saw that in 2010 when Ontario became eligible for equalization. It put a real squeeze on Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, Quebec, and Manitoba. It reduced their payments. If Alberta become eligible, if Ontario becomes eligible, even when, and it's not if, it's when, Newfoundland and Labrador become eligible again, um, that's going to mean less money as a share of revenue for uh, for the other provinces that are already receiving equalization. And because in those provinces, equalization makes up about 20% of all government revenue in the Maritimes, for example, they need to be ready for these changes. They could be really significant in terms of how much money they get from Ottawa. So in terms of going forward, as you say, that, that there's some, some obvious mm-hmm. reckoning here for the Alberta government, for the federal government mm-hmm. in recognizing that the realities that we're operating under at the moment and that, mm-hmm. that we don't have the kind of money to, to throw around that we once did. There, there's the more difficult question, I guess, Ben, in saying, well, how do we fix this? How, how do we get Alberta back to, to where it was 12 years ago? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a much more difficult kind of conversation, isn't it? Yeah, it's, re- it's, it's really hard. And there's two dimensions of that. There's the first one of saying, hey, uh, we've got way less money. How are we going to balance the budget? Things of that nature. How are we going to cope with this reality of reduced uh, revenue? And uh, the, the quotation about not being the richest kid on the block anymore has important implications in the short term. But as you say, I think that the right, uh, those are really the right questions. What can we do to reverse this trend in the longer term uh, so that we're back in a position of Alberta having a very high level of fiscal capacity? And that's not easy. 
Uh, but certainly the way that you can, the thing that you can do that helps the most is creating a pro-growth economic environment. Uh, and that probably means trying to make uh, as efficient and effective a tax mix as you can. Um, it, it likely means that there's been positive steps on corporate income tax, not reversing that decision and elevating it because uh, a lower corporate income tax uh, will help drive growth in the long run. And then trying to make sure that the, the deficit and debt, which are becoming such serious problems in Alberta, uh, that we get some sort of hold on them because the larger the debt grows, the more foreign investment realizes that one day taxes are going to have to come about to pay for the interest on that debt. So it can eventually create something we call debt overhang, where a high enough level of provincial debt uh, or deficits that are creating debt scares off foreign investors. So getting our arms around the fiscal problems and then focusing on a pro-growth uh, policy agenda, that's the best thing we can do to get the line, uh, that downward line in Alberta's fine, uh, fiscal capacity turned back up again. But we can't wait for that uh, to start fixing the financial problem. We have to deal with reality where we are now. Uh, rather than hoping for, uh, for for a revenue bounce back. That's not the thing we can do. Crossing our fingers and hoping uh, for another resource boom, for example, that would take care of the fiscal problems, but that's sure. not a responsible way to to, uh, to go forward. We have to plan for things not to get better on that front and hope that they do. Well, it's a sobering read, but an important one. The Great Convergence, measuring the fiscal capacity gap between have and have not provinces. It's online at FraserInstitute.org. Ben, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you for your interest in our study. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Uh, ben Eisen is a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute and a co-author of this report uh, that you can read for yourself uh, if you can stomach it at FraserInstitute.org. But uh, uh, probably a lot of it's not going to come as a surprise, but it is kind of stark to, to read it in these terms. And even just the idea that for the first time, well, really ever, certainly since we've been keeping track of this stuff, which goes back to the 60s, that Alberta will not have the highest fiscal capacity in the country. BC will this year. So the uh, chicken nuggets made by a company called Eat Just have been approved for sale in Singapore. Now, you might be wondering, well, well, who cares, right? Why, why is that news? Well, it's news because these chicken nuggets aren't technically from chickens, per se, uh, even though I, I guess maybe <laughs> genetically it's, it's chicken meat. This is lab-grown meat, meat that, that's cultured and grown in a lab. In other words, chicken that doesn't come from a chicken. Uh, the company Eat Just, and, and maybe you can ga gather from, from their name, they're really emphasizing the ethical side of this. They're a company that makes meat products that don't involve killing animals. So it is kind of a, a new frontier in, in the world of food, and so it, it is significant now that this... Uh, situation in Singapore. Singapore is the first country to approve the sale of lab-grown meat. Maybe many more to come. So how much of a threat is this to the uh, traditional meat industry? How willing are consumers and how willing are they going to be as this technology continues to, to evolve uh, to consume meat grown in a lab? So like I say, I, th I think it's a really interesting point we're at here. Maybe this is going to change how we consume food and how we consume meat products in particular. Uh, joining us uh, for some further thoughts on what this all uh, represents, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at uh, The Food Professor. Sylvain, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. My pleasure. So first of all, explain what this is, right? These, these chicken nuggets that this uh, company lab uh, or eat just 
produces. They, they are chicken, but they're not. What, what is this? <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> well, it's a, you, need an, you, need, you need a live animal. Uh, you need a stem cell to uh, start the whole process. And so once you have that, then you culture that, those, those cells in, in a laboratory context. And you do, ha- I'm not a food scientist, but uh, the way I understand this is that you would uh, culture these cells and then add whatever you want to recreate the product you want. You see, in, in, in synthetic agriculture, you can, you can design whatever product you want. If you want uh, um, iron-rich chicken, well, you can do that, uh, essentially. And you can taste the same or taste something different. This is what's unique about this. And so no animals have been slaughtered to get to that product, which is really what's different. And you still have access to animal protein. So mm-hmm. instead of just raising chicken or hogs or cattle, uh, you're basically relying on butchers in a lab to get your meat. I recall, and I think it was uh, maybe seven years ago, I think it was 2013, when we had the first uh, lab-grown hamburger. The cost at the time was, was really astronomical, not something that, that would, would transfer well to, to the marketplace. But technology being what it is, I would imagine that the cost of these kinds of products is, is certainly a lot more scalable, a lot more feasible now. Yeah, good memory. Uh, I believe at the time for 140 grams, the cost to produce one steak, if you will, one piece of meat, it was uh, it was over 150,000 U.S. <laughs> but what is going to be sold in in Singapore, uh, which is now legal, the chicken, the lab grown chicken, will be priced the same as regular chicken. This is how technologies have evolved over the last five, six years. It's amazing. Uh, at the time, of course, we thought, well, my goodness, we're, gonna, we're, we're light years away from seeing lab-grown anything. But there's so much money being poured into these uh, technologies, these projects, that uh, it's really a matter of time before we see some of these products being commercialized everywhere around the world and including Canada. So we've had the phenomenon for the last few years of these plant-based protein products, uh, you know, plant-based hamburgers and, and, and the rest. So products that are, are not made from meat but taste like meat. And they've kind of carved out a, a little niche for themselves. I mean, is this another niche product or do you think this represents a, a bigger threat to, to the meat industry? Uh, I think it is, uh, because um, there are a couple of things uh, uh, that uh, lab-grown products uh, do deal with that, uh, that the common agriculture has, uh, has a problem dealing with. So, for example, climate change, it's hard to, to compete against that type of technology because it, do- it doesn't generate a whole lot of carbon compared to, to other Production. The the other thing, of course, is if you're concerned about the the ethical uh, treatment of animals, that's certainly one way to do it because nobody's been slaughtered to get to that that food. Also, in light of what happened in recent months, especially in your neck of the woods in Alberta with Cargill, uh, you don't really have to worry too much about supply chain disruptions and food safety recalls. There is no E. coli. There is no salmonella. Uh, so risks are extremely low. 
are much lower than regular meat products. So as you can imagine, the complexities of distributing meat products uh, no longer exist when you grow uh, meat in a lab. But I would go even further. I actually do see the day when people uh, could barbecue their steak that they actually manufactured in their own kitchen. You could actually, I do see the day at some point, people will have a microwave-sized device on their kitchen countertop and they could produce uh, whatever they want to eat at night and it would be filled with animal proteins. <laughs> well, there, there's a very immediate threat, I think, to one aspect of, of the meat industry. Like, you know, Canada exports a lot of beef to, to a lot of these Asian countries. Yeah. And, and in countries like Singapore or even Japan, right, there's not as much space to have a lot of farms to produce y- your own meat. So they, they rely heavily is, on countries the, like Canada. This is the right? one thing we need to underscore. Most Canadians won't understand why we're talking about lab-grown meat, but... When you go to Singapore, you quickly realize that uh, space is an issue. Uh, in Europe, it's the same thing. If you don't have space, as much as, as Canada has, for example, uh, growing, producing meat is a challenge. And Singapore has given itself an objective to produce uh, 30% of the meat it consume domestically. Well, the only way to do it is in a lab. And that's what they want to do, and that's why it was approved. And, of course, uh, the fact that it's happening now is no coincidence. Uh, It has a lot to do with COVID, the pandemic. We saw a lot of supply chain disruptions. And when you're reliant on global supply chains as a country, as a state country uh, like Singapore, uh, you quickly become concerned uh, about food security. So that's why Canadians can't really appreciate where – people from Singapore are coming from, but at the same time, uh, I do see the FDA approve a product like that eventually, because the technology is coming from San Francisco, (laughs) and eventually, uh, I I do see Health Canada approving a product. I don't know when, but I do see the potential of of that happening. The, The question mark that I have is, how do you regulate a product like that? How do you make sure... The CFIA can uh, can police industry and make sure that everyone's in compliance. That that's the big question mark I have. What about for the consumer? I, I think there's kind of a psychological barrier to to overcome here because there is still a bit of an ick factor when it comes to this this idea. I suspect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we did ask. We did ask Canadians uh, a couple of times over the last uh, few years. The highest percentage of Canadians uh, who are willing to try a lab-grown meat product uh, was 22%. So you're right. (laughs) A lot of people are probably going, yeesh, I'm sticking to my steak. (laughs) Well, but that's the thing, right? I mean, we we don't often go and and sit in slaughterhouses and watch how they do it there, right? It's kind of hypocritical (laughs) at some level. And I say this as a meat eater. It's hypocritical to say, give me a steak. I don't know about this lab-grown stuff. Well, there, there should be an ick factor because if we all saw how our meat was prepared, we might have a different view of it. 
No, absolutely. I, I've been to slaughterhouses. I've I visited GBS in Alberta, uh, Brooks, and and I visited Cargill a, a, as well in High River. And uh, I'm an omnivore. I'm a proud omnivore. I enjoy mm-hmm. my meat on a barbecue specifically. Uh, but I do know a lot of people that if I would bring them into the slaughterhouse, they would probably turn into vegans like right away. <laughs> it's not a pretty sight. No kidding. Well, this will be interesting to continue to watch this trend. Uh, Sylvan, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You as well. Sylvan Charlebois, who's a professor, also director of the uh, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at uh, Dalhousie University. So he says this is something to keep an eye on. This is still early days. So I don't know that it's an existential threat as of now to beef producers and poultry producers and pork producers, but they should definitely be aware of this. And if countries like Singapore see the opportunity to be less reliant on countries well, like Canada, that could potentially have a big impact, right, in, in drawing up some of those export markets for us. Again, I don't know if Canadians are going to go a whole hog, pardon the pun, uh, to do this. But you, you could see that evolution. I, I, I would be curious, too, because I'm, I'm not a vegetarian. I don't mind eating meat. Would this count as, as eating meat to a vegetarian? Right. Would, would a vegetarian be okay with eating a, a steak, or in this case, these chicken nuggets, that come from cultured meat? Stem cells that are used to, to culture this meat in a lab. No animal's been killed. Would that be uh, sufficient enough to convince vegetarians that it's okay to eat this product? And if you're, you know, the, the red-blooded uh, Alberta, love your steak, love your hamburger kind of guy, or gal, would this appeal to you at all? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.